My father always taught us that there was no limits, that it was never like, oh, you can't do that or good luck with that. It was like, yeah, sure. If you want to do that, just go do it. And so we just had this sort of unbridled sense of self-esteem that, yeah, like, why would we not be able to do it? So I'm never one that limits myself. average CEO reads 60 books per year, and many attribute their success to this habit of constant learning. This is the difference between those who actualize and those who fail. This automization of their learning, this 1% better every day. On the Minterbox podcast, we're making it easy for you to build and maintain that same habit, the same type of constant lifelong learning as those CEOs, simply by listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and tune in for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and every Friday. And if you want to dig deeper into what our incredible guests teach, make sure to go to mentorbox.com and become a member today. CEOs on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep, deep knowledge. And just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you're ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at mentorbox.com today. There, we'll be uploading a course from Carol Roth. Carol has worn many hats in her career, moving across radio and television, from investment banking to brand ambassadorship and general business advisory. She's entrepreneurial in every sense of the word, though wait until the end to get her surprising advice for wannabe entrepreneurs. And she credits much of this to her unique upbringing. As a first-generation college student at an Ivy League school, she learned to go after whatever she wanted without fear and with the loftiest of goals. She shows no signs of stopping her quest to collect professional experiences, and I can't wait to see what she picks up next. Enjoy our conversation. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Mentor Box Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, and today I am speaking with Carol Roth. Carol is a radio host, television personality. She plays herself on TV, an author, and I love that you say this, Carol, a recovering investment banker. And ultimately, you describe yourself as a, a collector of experiences. Can you explain to me what that means and maybe what you like most about having this wide variety of life experience and media experience. Yes. So when I started out, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And so I had two parents that weren't really into that whole thing. And my dad was a union electrician. And basically, somehow I got myself into Wharton undergrad and uh, went to my dad 
who said, what's a Wartman? And I don't think I can pay for that. Maybe they can take food stamps because I just got laid off. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening here? But, you know, I decided that I was going to pursue an education and find a way to do something that was interesting. But as my dad always warned me, not keep any college debt. So I racked up my college debt and became an investment banker because I wanted to get that great experience and pay it down very quickly and be debt free. I never wanted to be the world's best investment banker. And I was always the kid that was doing a bunch of entrepreneurial things. I was involved in a million different extracurricular activities. And I was was just like a very curious and greedy individual. (laughs) And I just like to have my hands in a lot of different things. So I decided I wanted to do all of these different things, but I didn't really want to be known just for any of them. So I started transitioning the things that I did. And within that time frame, not only did I move my status from investment banker to recovering investment banker, because it's a 12-step program and you never really get past step 11 if you're a dealmaker, but I decided to do all these cool things. And I've been a public company director and I've written a New York Times bestselling book and I've been a reality TV show judge for a Mark Burnett produced reality show. And I've hosted shows for brands like Microsoft and Bank of America. And I've been an entrepreneur and I've been an investor. And, you know, I just decided that I wanted to do all these things and I'm still greedy and I still want to do cool things. And so it's just been easier for me because I love to do so many different things to have that early experience where I worked really hard and self-flexibility And then with the flexibility, then I could do all of these interesting things instead of having to be, you know, beholden to my work for the rest of my life. So what's next on the list of experiences to collect then like a, like a VR overlord or something like that? (laughs) Um, I do have a robot defense system thing. That's like playing around in my head that I've talked to um, one of the founders of a company I'm invested in about like maybe down the road. So you potentially will say, you from the robots later on. But um, yeah, I'm trying to be disciplined. I've got a a current entrepreneurial endeavor that I know we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've given myself a a short period of time. But while I'm doing that, you know, I do really interesting um, speaking um, with a focus on interviews. And I've interviewed folks like uh, Richard Branson and the CEO of major corporations like Bank of America. So I will continue to do those things. I've got a couple of new TV concepts that we're working on developing. Even though I'm focused, I'm still not focused. I was going to (laughs) say the ultimate multitasking by and by ultimate, I mean, dealing at like the highest level of achievement and and mindset and everything. It's, It's really remarkable how well, they're not super similar, but we have certain characteristics in our lives that we've already kind of discovered we share. We're not big fans of the outdoors was one that we discussed before we officially started the call here. But you mentioned that, you know, your family, you're you're the first to go to college, which I think is amazing that you went straight to Wharton. And that's just like mind blowing. But I think it's even more remarkable that you were that sort of, you know, entrepreneurial young person with that sort of an upbringing. I was uh, somewhat similar as a child. I tried to have my hands in everything at school, but it was a very small school. So it was like athletics, academics, and then like band and a couple of honor societies. (laughs) 
And I, I couldn't really see beyond, like I had a very tunnel vision sort of understanding of, you know, what could get me places. And it was all like what existed in the institution that I was in, which was, you know, high school. And yeah. it seems like you really had, you know, a broad idea of what was out there to achieve from a young age. How did you, how did you figure that out in your situation? It's so funny. And so this is like such an interesting connection point for us. So I feel like obviously there's a, a part of me that, you know, was born, right? That, that I was born an entrepreneur. I was born with drive. I was born very competitive, but there was certainly that environmental piece. And so while you went to your high school and had certain experiences, I did the same. And even though my dad was a union electrician, the part I didn't tell you is that he didn't get married until he was 36 years old, which, you know, today doesn't sound like a big deal, but he was born in the thirties. So, you know, that okay. at that point in time was a, was a really big deal. And he had lived with his mom from the age of 20 to 36, saving a ton of money from his work as an electrician. So by the time he was 36 and you know married to my mom, they were able to move to this sort of up and coming place, which, you know, was kind of a little bit of the boonies, but had, you know, like a, Hey, like this might be a, an interesting place that turned into a place where all the doctors and lawyers moved to town. So we had the benefit of being with the kids of the really successful people. And so I emulated many respects what they did. You know, I knew about Penn and Wharton because I had friends whose brothers went there. Otherwise, I would have no idea what that was. And so a lot of those possibilities that were opened up to me were because of the environment that I lucked into, that if I had been in a different environment, I'm sure I would have been as successful, but it would have been a completely different route and potentially different set of experiences. I think about it a, a lot that way too. You know, the the people that you meet and just the sort of random encounters, if you will, that you have, but those sort of, you know, cosmic, the, the cosmic placement, if you will, of, of where you end up. And I like to think that my having, I worked in publishing for a little bit. My having worked in publishing really opened me up to all sorts of different experiences because I was dealing in like 16 different academic disciplines at like the college level. And yeah. what it seems like you have done is that you took those early encounters with those folks that had, you know, that were coming from the, the success, the high level of success uh, type families and lineage and all of that. And you've really turned that into your your own personal experience by continuing to seek out those people at the very highest level, like you just mentioned with Richard Branson and and just all the endeavors that you're undertaking. So yeah, you started there, but now you're just like, you're just like rocketing into space with it all. You're basically just taking it to that next level and just like cultivating this massive, you know, space for yourself. Would you, would you say that's fair? I It is, but you know, what part of, of, I think why I've had that ability to do that is the way that my parents raised me. And and I talk a lot about my father because I think that he in particular was a it, very integral in shaping my personality. And, you know, I'll just call it out here. I'll call out the elephant in the room. It's fairly unusual for a woman to be in the kinds of positions and have so many of them from investment banking to, you know, being on the boards of directors, being a radio host, media, you know, those, these are a lot of you know, very male dominated areas. Absolutely. And, and even with the continued success, my father 
always taught us that there was no limits, that it was never like, oh, you can't do that or good luck with that. It was like, yeah, sure. If you want to do that, just go do it. And so we just had this sort of unbridled sense of self-esteem that, yeah, like, why would we not be able to do it? So I'm never one that limits myself. And I find that a lot of people around me, even some of my very most successful you know, amazing friends and colleagues who are just the, you know, the smartest people in the world feel like they have this imposter syndrome. And I never had that feeling. I've never felt like I wasn't good enough or wasn't worthy enough or didn't have the ability to do something. And if I didn't have the expertise, I went out and got it. Like when I switched from investment banking into media, I went to Second City and got improv training. I've always been willing to like put in the work and to do whatever it takes in order to make something happen. But I've never had that mental philosophy that I couldn't do it. I just knew if I put in the work and the effort that eventually we would get there or we would get to something and that would be interesting in and of itself. What was the exact motivation to go to Second City to to do improv? Did you have something in the back of your mind that was always like, (laughs) I want to, you know, like be that sort of like famous, you know, television personality, or was this like more of a, like a creative endeavor to like get your juices flowing more broadly? Was there any sort of specific motivation there? So I'd I'd like to say that this was a very well thought out strategic (laughs) plan, um, but it was not. So I always had an affinity, you know, I've always been a front person. I've always been out in front. You know, I did speech team. I did, you know, improv acting in high school on the speech team. You know, I've always had that sort of personality and I've always loved television as a medium. And I think that if I didn't have college debt and I didn't have all these people that sort of, you know, steered me in the like, oh, investment banking is a good way to do this. I probably would have gone, you know, to Hollywood and worked for a network or something like that, maybe been on the other side of things. So I just really like that medium. But when I started, you know, deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up, which I I still haven't figured out. But when I decided that that was something I should probably do, I had so many people say to me like, oh, you have a personality that you should be on television. And I was just like, oh, that would be really cool. Like, I don't know what that means or how you do that or whatever. But I just kind of work, I do everything, you know, I work backwards, like, what's the ultimate goal? Okay, you want to be on national TV, you have to be on local TV, you have to be in front of a camera. Oh, I can be in front of a camera, I'll pull out a camera and do random videos and put them on the internet. And, you know, as I started building my way up through the milestones, I ran into some people who were, you know, within the Hollywood realm. And one of them said to me, you know, you're really good, but you're so content focused. (laughs) And you know, your content, you need to let go of your content and focus more on your delivery. And improv might be interesting. And you're in Chicago. And so what I did is I went to Second City. And because the way that I do things, like I don't want to work at the level of the lowest person in the class, which is what I feel happens in big groups. And because I had that financial flexibility, I said, I want a custom program. So I basically had them create a program where the improv actors who, you know, were the ones who were doing the shows came in and worked directly with me one-on-one with the director. So it was a smaller group, but I was the only pupil and I was just working at the level of the actual real Second City 
improv troupe. So oh, wow. that was the way that I did it. And that's just sort of the way that I like to do things. I like to go to the top instead of, you know, climbing my way up from the bottom. Wow. Yeah. So you're, you really lack that, <laughs> that imposter syndrome or anything about you. You take it just to the exact opposite end of the spectrum where you're like, I don't even deal with, you know, the standards of, you know, the, the institution, the system that I'm in, I'm going to just move to the top and learn <laughs> from right. that space. Figure it out. I will figure it out and I'm paying you. So I'm just going to try and learn from the best and on my time and, and have to like, not have to go through all the BS of like that, like, you know, one person who just can't quite figure it out because I, I move so quickly and time is such a big issue for me that, you know, to me, that's like a waste of another potential experience that could be happening. Yeah. <laughs> so I just decided to, to throw that out the window. I hate to say I was probably like that guy that, that was just like the lowest level of the class doing <laughs> my best. But I was like, I, I was tall and I had a good presence. So they're like, oh, like he'll get there eventually. Like we got to give him time. So like, I, I feel so bad that I was ever there doing that. Oh, listen, <laughs> God bless. And you need to have your class too. And if somebody's got the patience and wants to endure that, that's amazing. And I do not begrudge you that at all. <laughs> I just don't want to participate in it I'm, I'm much better when there's a camera and you can cut it and you can restart it whenever you want. That's that's where I excel, where there's no pressure at all because post-production exists. Um, so I want to ask how this works in the realm of investment banking, though. We talked about this briefly, again, sort of before we officially started recording here. That is a particularly, you know, male space and male-oriented institution in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering if you are able to kind of transfer these principles over in the same way, or if there are any other sort of difficulties that you encountered, what was that experience like? Because you are recovering, as you say. So, <laughs> I loved it. I, I loved investment banking. Um, you know, I always say that when you go to a place like Wharton and they present you with like, do you want to be a consultant or an investment banker? If you like to deep dive into something, you become a consultant. Mm -hmm. And if you have ADD, you become an investment ah. banker because you can work on like a dozen deals at one time. So as you can probably surmise from our conversation thus far, that that for me was heaven because, you know, I was greedy. There's all these deals. I could do all these different things. And I purposely picked a boutique bank over one of the big banks because I wanted to have that meritocracy. I didn't want to be in a place where they say, okay, well, you're a first year analyst, so you can't come to a client meeting. Or if you do come, you can't speak because I just don't follow those rules. So I purposely picked a place that was kind of like, okay, here's the rope, go hang yourself, uh, which I, by the way, did several times, but you know, I, I took a shot at it and I excelled. I was, by the time I was 25 years old, I was a vice president and an officer of the firm, which, you know, in normal Wall Street is unheard of. You know, you spend three years as an analyst, they kick you out, you have to go to B school, you have to come back, you have to be an associate for three to four years. So, you know, I just completely, again, that, that whole sort of fast track <laughs> mentality. And, you know, from my standpoint, as I think that the, the, the whole, like, I just don't have very many, can I swear on this podcast? Yes. Okay. I don't have very many fucks to give <laughs> thing like philosophy just really worked for me because I was willing to put in the work. I worked really hard. I did well. And I let everybody know, and I let them know 
what it was that I expected. So I would go to meetings and I would speak and I would, you know, work 16 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was on all these deals and, you know, I started calling on companies and like all these crazy things that one probably shouldn't be doing at that age, but you know, they were growing fast and somebody was willing to do it. So they're like, yeah, sure, whatever, go ahead and do it. And as I did this, you know, I would tell them, this is what I'm doing. This is, you know, what the results are. I want to be promoted or I want to get paid this much. And there were definitely some people who rumbled and said, oh, you know, she's a self promoter. And my philosophy was like, well, if I'm not willing to promote myself, how am I supposed to expect somebody else to do that? And at the end of the day, it worked. So too bad for them. Hey, I hate to interrupt this conversation with Carol Roth, but I want to let you know where you can learn more about her entrepreneurial lifestyle. She recorded a full series of videos on her tough love for business mindset, but per usual, those are exclusively for MentorBox members. If you want access to those and much, much more, be sure to visit MentorBox.com. All right, back to the show. I'm confused. What's wrong with being a self-promoter? Like, of course you want to established that you're achieving something if you're achieving something. But is there is there like a dirty way of thinking about that that I'm just unfamiliar with or? I, I mean, again, I guess that there are some people and I don't know if this is a, you know, kind of a come down on the female thing yeah. or a just a, a general sense of, oh, you know, there, yeah, I mean, like, again, I don't really get it. I just know it's a thing. <laughs> it doesn't make sense <laughs> to me. Like, I can't explain crazy. It just <laughs> is what it is. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, pe- pe- some people, I mean, not obviously not enough of them, not anybody who cared or made decisions, but, you know, amongst the peers, there was that issue. But the funny thing is people always ask me, they're like, oh, you know, how many women were you in your class? And I was one of two women in my analyst class. And, you know, obviously it, it, there weren't a lot of women in the organization, but I just didn't care because I don't really think of myself in gender context. Yeah. Like, you know, yes, I have to wear uncomfortable sh- or I choose to wear uncomfortable shoes. Not as much anymore as I used to. Um, But like other than that, it just didn't occur to me. And funny enough, we had a reunion straight like the the company was just so cool. They had a reunion uh, about two years ago. And I had a bunch of guys who were um, a couple years ahead of me who told me that I was their hero. And I said, why? And they said, you don't understand because we used to all go to the gym, right? We would go to the gym at like seven or eight o'clock at night and then come back and work till like, you know, midnight or two in the morning or whatever it was. And apparently what these guys would do is they would go and they'd shower and they'd put their suits back on and they would go back to their desk. Well, I was like, dude, it's eight o'clock. We're going to, you know, I'm going to be here forever. I'm just going to put on my yeah, black Never put your suit back on. <laughs> Exactly. And so apparently I was the first person, which I didn't know, because again, I didn't care to break protocol and to just put on whatever the hell I wanted. And they specifically remember like, we remember you wore your Black Hawks jersey and you made it okay for us to then wear like comfy clothes for the rest of the night. And I just think it's so funny that like all of these like older guys, like that that was what they were waiting for me who just didn't care at all to go, yeah, I'm going to be here all night. I'm going to do good work. And that's all that matters. Why does anyone care if I'm wearing a Black Hawks jersey or not? But apparently they told me that was a big deal that they still remembered to this day, which I think is hilarious. I think that's funny too. And I, I want to tell you why for a different reason, because it's so interesting to me that that's what these men noticed about you is that 
like the way you like, I mean, not like the way you dress necessarily, but it was like, it was something that was essentially not relevant to the work that you were doing. It was about the way you acted in the space. Whereas I, you're my hero because you were a VP at 25 and I just turned 25. Actually, today is my birthday. I'm 25 right now, as of right now. Oh, happy birthday. Yay, thank you. A little bit of self-indulgence I won't sing to you. I won't sing to you because my singing sucks, but I hope you have some cake later. Thank you. But that that's so important to me because you were a VP doing something huge, you know, a, in, in a very influential, impactful realm, investment banking, B, as a woman in a male-dominated sphere like that, at 25 years old. Like, that's just so amazing to me that you're doing that at a young age. And then, like, yeah, it's really cool that you established that norm of, of you know, dressing comfortably after 8 p.m. That's really cool, too. But, like, for me, it's, it's like you obviously achieved very significantly at that company, too. And that's – I just feel like it's important for me to point that out and just kind of congratulate you there and, and let you know that you are – a very impressive person. <laughs> so that I that I am worthy. Thank, thank you very much. No, very much. It's just it's just very impressive <laughs> that you have done that, and then all the other stuff as well. And um, what what were some of the deals that you were working on when you were an investment banker? Though, what was your the favorite your favorite sort of stuff to be dealing with? So I I if there was a restaurant company that raised capital capital or did M and A in the mid nineties. I was involved with it. So Wolfgang Puck, P.F. Chang's, Ilfernayo, Einstein Brothers Bagels, wow. Papa John's Pizza, Lone Star, Cheesecake Factory. Like you, you just name it. Like I have, we have these things called tombstones, which is basically a commemorative thing that you get at the end of the deal. And I have like shelves full of these crazy tombstones from all of these deals that I worked on. And, and I worked in some other industries too. I did a little bit of tech and I did a little bit of food and beverage and I did a little retail and some consumer products and whatnot, but I did a lot of restaurant stuff. And, um, and obviously those are brand new Dave and Buster's. Those are brand names that you know, everybody's familiar with. How did you get started in that? Did you have a particular interest in food or restauranteries and all that? <laughs> Well, I eat a lot. Um, so that there's that. You know, it's interesting when I interviewed. So the, the story of me getting the job um, is is kind of a, an amusing one as well. I had never, you know, I, I mentioned I didn't come from a, a lot of means in terms of my background. And I had never been to San Francisco in my life. And when I was interviewing for my first job, you know, all these these jobs in college, at Wharton, all the investment banks would come to, to the school and you drop your resume and, you know, you get an interview. And then if you made it past the on-campus interviews, sometimes they do a second. But eventually, if you made it far enough out, they'd invite you out to their headquarters for like a super Saturday kind of interview. Yeah. So I had this great scheme in my mind that if I could find a San Francisco based investment bank, that I could fly to a city that I hadn't been to and check it out. And somebody else has died. So as I'm drop, dropping all of my, my resumes, the first reason, you know, before I even got to the whole idea of like, oh, a boutique would be great for me. The very first reason I dropped my resume is because I really wanted a trip to San Francisco. <laughs> so wait, the, this is the story is like totally insane from here. So I get the, the I get the interview and the interview is on the same day. And this we're going to take a left at Albuquerque here. 
It's on the same day that I am competing in the Miss Illinois pageant. Wow. I don't know why I'm competing in the Miss Illinois pageant other than somebody suggested it might be a fun thing to do. And somehow I agreed and went like, okay, yeah, I'll try that. I haven't done that before. So I have the nerve to call up the guy at the investment bank and say, listen, I'm going to be in a beauty pageant the day of our investment banking interview. Can we figure out something else? And the guy's (laughs) like, are you fucking kidding me? And I'm like, I am totally not kidding. It's like, I don't know. I'll think about it. Why don't you call me back? And so I call him back and I was like, well, maybe I can go up to New York and meet one of your MDs while they're traveling. And he kept, I kept calling him. He kept saying, I'll think about it. The 17th time I called, this guy said, you are the most persistent motherfucker I have ever met in my life. Fine. I'm going to give you the interview. And I went to New York. I did the interview, had a great interview, flew out to San Francisco. So So this all happened. But this is a very long way of saying that that guy was in the restaurant industry at Montgomery Securities. And I really liked him a lot. And he told me all about it during the recruiting process. And then during my Super Saturday, I met a bunch of other people who also had done restaurants and they were really strong at that. And I knew I wanted to do something where I had a lot of value add, you know, Obviously, there was a lot of tech that was coming out then that I just didn't have as great of a grasp on. And I didn't want to have that lag of getting up to speed. So I wanted to be able to make the impact immediately. And since I had made those relationships and they were doing a lot of work, that ended up being a place where I worked, you know, kind of pretty regularly. And that eventually, by the time it was time to join a group, I had established a relationship there and was doing a bunch of deals. So ended up moving in that direction. But again, a very, very bizarre and roundabout way of getting there. What I get from all of this across the different stories that you've told is you're you're very absolute in your actions and you this you make this kind of very clear on your website. You give no nonsense advice relating to entrepreneurship and, you know, the sort of hard truth and sunshine and puppy dogs not included is kind of how you put a, a sub headline on your, on your website there. And I, I really get that sense from just the sort of the, the direction in which you take action and the means by which you do it, you know, calling somebody over and over saying, Hey, like, yeah, I'm doing a beauty pageant, but like, that doesn't make me any less serious about this. I bet that just like <laughs> blew his mind that you were like, that you were a serious about that, but be like kept pushing along and made it happen. <laughs> And I, I want to kind of gather in your your overarching philosophy on entrepreneurship and and how it relates to all the endeavors that you've undertaken and, and what you've learned, because I really feel like it's, you know, we hear a lot that uh, and MentorBox teaches this a good amount that, you know, it's important to try a lot of things, see what sticks on the wall, um, you know, product market fit, that sort of thing when you're creating a new product or a new service or whatever but you really seem to have like the most absolute of any of the philosophies where it's like, you're just willing to like get straight to the point and just hammer it home with whoever you're dealing with. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I think it's sort of a combo of both. I I think there is, you know, I'm a stickler for strategy and plan. I'm a stickler for, you know, you have to know where you're going in order to move in that direction. 
I also think that at the same time, we have no idea what we don't know. Um, Context matters. I I did a video recently and my analogy was the grocery store line. You know, I do a really good job of trying to handicap which line is going to be the fastest. And I'm wrong every single time (laughs) because I don't know that somebody is going to have like, you know, a a product check in aisle 75 and 95 coupons and, you know, whatever it is. So you just don't have that context. And sometimes it is like the weirdest things that work out. And so I think it's important to both have a discipline and a strategy for like 95% of the time and then 5% of the time just take a flyer on things, just randomly do stuff and be open to what information presents itself to you. Because I think ultimately the market will give you that feedback. And I think that's also why it's really important to not spend too much money you know, committing to something and moving in in one direction and, and being flexible and, and pivoting. And we've seen this with so many of the true success stories. If you think of a company like an Airbnb that was so set on being, you know, couch surfing in somebody's house while they were there. And finally, when they ran out of all their money and their VCs, like, I think you need to pivot and just think about this direction. And finally, they're like, okay. And, you know, that's what works. That's happened to me so many times in in my career and in my entrepreneurship where the, the stuff that seems so obvious to me, you sometimes can't get the other person's buy-in. Like they don't see that it's obvious or they're not entrepreneurial. And the stuff where you're like, I have no idea why that would possibly work, but okay, like let's just to have the conversation. You know, sometimes those end up being your best relationship. So I think that that having the strategy is important, but not getting in your own way and being too smart for your own good is important. Um, but I think that, you know, that I wrap that in sort of that no fear kind of um, attitude, because a lot of it too is just people getting in their own minds and getting in their own way. And I have to talk, you know, some of my most brilliant friends out of this all of the time where it's like, you know, why are you downplaying what you're doing or why, why are you thinking you can't do this or why not just, you know, reach out and make a big pitch in this direction? Like, what do you have to lose? And so I think it's it's having that mentality as well. So when you're talking about strategy, do you think that experience and the, the breadth of experience that you've acquired and established, is that key to your ability to strategize? No, I think that I am strategic by nature. I think if you go and you do like the strength finders tests, I have strategic, I think, is my number two um, strength behind significance. And I am, I'm the type of person that I see things like three to five years before they happen. I see chess moves, you know, five chess moves ahead. I just, it's just how my brain thinks. I'm always like, like three steps ahead of everyone, which is a challenge because it usually means that by the time everyone else has gotten there, I've gotten bored and I've moved on to something else. <laughs> and that's been a recurring issue. So I don't think that, that the strategy has been, you know, as, as much as of a juggernaut as just that that's what I bring to the table. I also would say like, don't follow my example example, if you want to be an entrepreneur, like if you want to be a really successful entrepreneur, you have to be super focused. Like I'm, I'm a successful entrepreneur in a different realm, but if you want to be like that unicorn entrepreneur, 
my philosophy and my sort of way of action does not work. And when I invest in companies, um, I definitely look for CEOs that are not <laughs> like me at all. <laughs> that would be my wow. thought. I'd be like, oh boy, yeah, no, like you know, I, I can bring to the to the advisory board or to the board of directors that you know sort of discipline. Entrepreneurship takes you know a lot of focus and a lot of commitment in one direction and that deep dive. And it's something that I've been very aware of. And I, I know myself and I know how I act. And it's why I've never said, okay, I'm going to be the CEO of, you know, this startup company that's going to be the next Facebook or whatnot, because I think I would drive my, like I could do it, but I probably drive myself crazy in the process. I so I do, I do think that for entrepreneurs to be successful, you have to be the right person at pursuing the right opportunity at the right time. And, um, you know, a, a lot of the right person, if you're really trying to like moonshot and do something very significant is, is having that like complete, you know, maniacal focus in pursuing something with that urgency to get it done immediately. And then having infinite patience when it takes, you know, three to 10 times longer than you expect it will. So to entrepreneurs, ultimately do as you say, not as you do. Uh, to everything in my life. <laughs> wow. And not as I do. I, I am the ultimate. I remember my dad was like, you know, be, do kids to, or should be seen and not heard. Yeah, yeah. So like that, that's my version of that. It's like, do as I say, don't do as I do. I love it. Well, it makes for a super fascinating story. I'm glad you were able to connect with us and be on the call today. Uh, thank you so much. Before we take off, you had um, you have a couple things that you want to tell our audience about, right? Thanks. Yes. So um, even though I am not the unicorn entrepreneur, I am a mission-based entrepreneur. And I have a product that I would love for everybody to check out called Future File at futurefile.com, which is a legacy and wishes planning system. And while you got to hear a lot of fun stuff in my personal story, there's also been a lot of personal tragedy. I had a boyfriend who was killed in a car accident my senior year of college at the age of 21. And as I was mourning that and doing my investment banking work, my mom was diagnosed with leukemia and she passed away the day after her 51st birthday. And then my stepmom got lung cancer and passed away at the age of 55. And at that point, my dad wanted my sister and I to be prepared if anything, God forbid, were to happen to him. And so he created a roadmap with all of his wishes and information for a situation like that. And five years ago, my dad was in a freak accident and we had to grab this information, including things like, you know, what were his wishes if he was incapacitated and when did he want to be taken off life support and empowered of attorney. And he ultimately didn't make it. And then we had to, you know, get into his house and wrap up his personal affairs and lay the body to rest and do all these things. And by having this organizer, he saved us, you know, a lifetime of burden from, you know, did we make the right decision to more than 10000 End of life costs are, you know, well into the five figures. And for the five figures we did spend above that, you know, he had end of life insurance in place. And then he saved me hundreds of hours of time, which, you know, if you've listened to this, you know that time 
is very important to me, but trying to figure out where all of his information and policies and accounts were and making sure we had them all. And so it was, was one of those things as we told people about it, that everyone said, you know, my parents are aging, I should really do that for them. Or I have a significant other and they don't really know what's going on. Or, you know, I'm young. If something happened to me, my parents wouldn't know what to do. And, you know, everything from social media wishes to how do they access your Bitcoin to, you know, all these kinds of things that you don't think about. God forbid if something were to happen. And so we took that prototype and we created that roadmap for people to organize information and wishes and then have their loved ones um, be able to access it either for aging issues. So if there's an accident or, you know, your parents start not being as mentally sharp or whatever, or your grandparents. And then ultimately if someone passes away. So um, I hope that it's, it's a mission. It's something, it's my, something my father did for us that was a gift that we wanted to be able to help other people. And super inexpensive, um, $99.99 one-time charge. And uh, I hope that you will all spread the word and have your family members protect loved ones and help them save that burden, time, and money at futurefile.com. And uh, I'm very active on Twitter at Carol J.S. Roth. It's a really noble cause that you're going after there. I, I, I'm sorry we didn't get to dive too deeply into your personal story there, but I, I'm, I'm glad to see that you've made it through all the difficulty and are, are trying to give back now. That's, that's really great. Thanks. Yeah, I know it's it's um, it's you know kind of like you know a good entrepreneur you find opportunity in your personal experience and you know it really was a gift and so the opportunity to be able to influence other people's families and it help protect them in a time that's really the most difficult time for for people whether they're caregivers or if somebody passes away um, unless you've been through it you just have no idea yeah, yeah. but it, it's worth preparation. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Carol, for joining us today. This was a great conversation. Um, Everybody else, thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you on the next episode. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors, as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at mentorbox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.